Y'all yeah, go ahead and turn to the um, 138th Psalm, Psalm 138. This morning we're gonna um, we're gonna continue what Buffy started last week, our Easter series, and um, last week he we kicked it off. Buffy uh, talked about um, the world's view that God doesn't exist. And this week, we're going to examine um, Scripture. We're going to examine the Bible, uh, the Word of God. Is, 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 it a book of, is it a book of fiction? Is it a fairy tale? Or is it the unadulterated Word of God? Psalm 138. Are you there? Mm-hmm. All right, let's stand. Let's read. We're just going to read one verse. Verse 2. He says, I, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So he exalts his word above his, even, even his own name. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. And God, thank you so much for another day in your house. God, we thank you for everyone here who've come to hear your word this morning. And and, and we're not just going to hear your word. We're going to hear about your word. And we're going to hear why we can trust your word, why we can believe your word. Lord, I pray today that um, what you speak to your people will, will, will go to their hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that lives are changed this morning. I pray that um, spiritual lives are grown here this morning. Lord, we love you. We give you all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory. It's in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to um, to understand um, or, or even know all that's implied by the text. Um that I just read, but but what I do know is this, and that's that God intends for us to understand that He has a very high opinion of His Word. So uh, it, it's a book. This this is a book to be honored. This is a book to to be read, to be believed, and to be obeyed. He didn't create it and preserve it so that it would be an ornament on our coffee tables, right? He didn't create it and preserve it for that. Scripture came from God and shows us the way back to God. Hey, Matthew, will you turn the microphone on? Thank you. Thank you. So we should read it, study it, believe it, and obey it, right? We should know it in our head, store it in our heart, uh, show it in our lives, and sow it into the world. This book is... This, this book is and must be the Word of God, right? And we're going, we're going to talk about it this morning. But before studying the truth of Scripture, I believe that we have to have a grasp on the fact that the Bible is of a divine origin. It's inspired, it's infallible, and it's authoritative. Unless we recognize that, then we have no basis of believing anything taught in the book. So we have to know and understand what we believe about Scripture, right? We have to know what we believe and why we believe it, right? So... There, there's, there's all this fuzziness, I guess, about it in the world today. All this uh, um, confusion among religious people 
the, the, they failed to recognize uh, the absolute authority of the Word of God, and and they they re, they fail to recognize the the authority of God in all things, um, in all matters of faith and obedience, in all matters of doctrine and conduct. Right? It's just a book we pick up on our way to church on Sundays. We crack it open, we close it, we read a verse or two, and then we close it to the next week. That's what the world, if they even believe it, that's what they feel about it. A lot of church-going Christian people, that's what they feel about it. If that's not how they feel about it, that's how they treat it, right? If we live in a world, uh, we live in a world today, our modern society right now, it celebrates heresy. Does it not? It's full of speculations and skepticism, so we need to be sure of our foundation and, and what we're grounded in. We have to be sure of our ground. So look at Isaiah 5.13. You don't have to turn. I'll read it to you. But just write some of these, um, these because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to mention a bunch of scripture references this morning. Just jot them down. You can go back and read them. Uh, but Isaiah 5.13, he said, Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. In other words, doctrinal and spiritual ignorance always leads to spiritual bondage. Doctrinal and spiritual ignorance always leads to spiritual bondage. So assuming that you recognize the fact that, that, that the Bible's claim of divine origin, inspiration, and infallibility can't be denied, I want us to look at four things this morning uh, about the Bible that I hope will make it even more precious to you. Okay? So the first thing is the Bible is inspired, infallible, and in the inerrant word of God. The Bible is the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the Bible being the infallible, inerrant, and inspired Word of God is a claim the Bible makes about itself. Right? It's not something that I made up or other people have made up. The Bible makes the claim that it's the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. So we're either going to accept that claim entirely. We're going to accept it entirely or reject it completely. There's no halfway. There's no, you can't be in the halfway. You either, you don't have one foot in and one foot out. You either believe it totally or you reject it completely. Either the Bible's the word of God or it's just a horrible, evil hoax and people are deceived. Does that make sense? Okay. And the same's got to be said about, about uh, other religious books too. The Koran, the Book of Mormon, all these other self-help uh, prophets that, that write books and sell books. Either if the Bible is the Word of God, then all of those other books and all of those other um, religious texts are, are deceptions, right? If we accept the Bible as the Word of God, then we have to reject all other writings. So the Bible itself claims to be inspired, infallible, and errant. It, it, it claims to be sufficient, complete, and the final word of God. We don't, we don't have to dig deep in Scripture either to find these claims. All right? The Bible claims <clears throat> divine origin. It claims to be infallibly inspired, though written by men who were both fallible and sinful. First Timothy or 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All scripture is what? Inspired by God. God breathed. That's right. In 2 Peter 1.21, which is kind of going to be a theme for this morning, and this is one of the greatest texts uh, in the New Testament about the Bible. It, it, Peter writes, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 
Oh my goodness. <clears throat> so the Bible claims divine origin. The Bible also claims to be a necessary revelation without which God can't be known. Does that make sense? So um, Romans 10, 13 to 17, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will then they believe in him who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. First Peter 1.23, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. So God's spirit, right? God is spirit and he can't be known unless he makes himself known by special revelation, which comes down through his word. Does that make sense? All right, so the next thing is the Bible claims to be the sufficient, effectual means by which chosen, redeemed sinners are called to life in Christ. Let me read that again. The Bible claims to be the sufficient, effectual means by which chosen, redeemed sinners are called to life in Christ. James 1.18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Second Timothy 3.15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And Isaiah 55.11, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not to return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So the Bible claims to be the sufficient, effectual means by which chosen, redeemed sinners are called to a life in Christ. And the next thing is the Bible claims both authority and finality as the Word of God. It claims both authority and finality as the Word of God. Revelation 22, 18, 19, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. So we on the same page? Y'all get it? Y'all following? So when we talk about inspiration, we've got to understand what scripture teaches about it. Right? You hear you hear talk sometimes that uh, that the men who wrote the Bible were inspired. If you believe that, raise your hand. Man, even the pastor's wrong. <laughs> uh, that's not really accurate. The men who wrote the book, the men who wrote the Bible, not really. Those men were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote, but they really weren't inspired. It's the Word of God itself that's inspired. Does that make sense? The Word itself's inspired. Those men, the words that those men wrote were inspired. So, we, we also know that what the Bible shows us that, that these about these men, these men were flawed, right? They were flawed men, so the book was given uh, through weak, sinful people. Does that make sense? The book was given through weak, sinful men. But their weakness, their sins, their humanity doesn't affect the Bible's in, infallibility. 
Just because they're weak doesn't mean that the, that the words that they wrote were wrong, that the words that they wrote were infallible. Is that, is that y'all following? Does that make sense? Because I had a tough time with that. We see the personality of the writers in their writings, but but their personalities didn't corrupt the the Bible's perfections. The Bible claims to be inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God, and it is. It claims to be, and it is. And listen, if you share with enough unbelievers long enough, you're going to get a whole lot of questions, one of which will be this one. Um, Actually, as a matter of fact, it wasn't said to me this week, but it was said to somebody close to me who was sharing um, with an unbeliever. But but it, the the uh, what's his name? Who was it that died earlier this week? The, the Stephen Hawkins. Okay, that was being discussed, and so the question was raised: What about all the places where the Bible contradicts science? What about all the places where the Bible contradicts science? And the best response to that is is usually asking the folks to show you the, the text they're talking about. When you ask them to show you the text they're talking about, they usually uh, end that, that that'll typically end the discussion. I'm not a scientist myself, far from it, won't ever be. But I know that there's not a single contradiction between the statements of Scripture and the established facts of science. That makes sense. There's not a contradiction between the statements of Scripture and the established facts of science. Now, there's conflict between Scripture and scientific theories, but but no, none between Scripture and fact. The theories of science constantly change, uh, and and they contradict each other. But the facts of science and the facts of of the Bible are in perfect harmony, perfectly. So the Bible is an inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. All right. The next point is is that the evidences and arguments for divine origin and inspiration are as comforting as they are undeniable. I'll say it again. The evidences and arguments for divine origin and inspiration are as comforting as they are undeniable. So I'm going to go down through a list of um, a few internal evidences of inspiration. We're not even going to look at the external evidences, even though there's a ton of those. But the internal evidence uh, evidences are sufficient both to discredit the critics and also to comfort ourselves uh, while we live in, in the world that we're in, which is what? For, fallen, horrible, sinful. So the first evidence, internal evidence of inspiration is, is Jesus accepted the Old Testament scriptures as the word of God. Jesus himself accepted the Old Testament scriptures as the, word of God, as the word of God. While he was here on the earth, he never made any attempt to prove the validity of the Old Testament. He didn't try to prove that it was valid. He just referred to it and quoted it and lived on it as the word of God, right? Truth is, he, he deliberately quoted from the two books of the Old Testament, which are the ones most frequently attacked by critics and unbelievers, Deuteronomy and Isaiah, when he was... Um, Deuteronomy was the book that he made every quote uh, from when he be- when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. And Isaiah was the book that he referred to when he began his public ministry and first, first announced himself as Messiah. All right, so first, Jesus accepted the Old Testament scriptures as the word of God. The second thing is the uniqueness of the Bible or the exclusivity of its teachings attest to its divine origin. The uniqueness of the Bible or the exclusivity of its teachings attest to its divine origin. All right, so the Bible is um, is totally different 
from any other book, any other religious book. It's completely, totally different uh, in the things that it reveals and teaches. The Bible tells us what no other book, no other religious book or any other man-made text uh, would tell us or could tell us. Here's some, here's some, for example, the Bible alone gives us an account of God's character that agrees with and satisfies what's revealed in creation. So the Bible alone gives us an account of God's character that agrees with and satisfies what's revealed in creation and what's written on the hearts of men. Scripture tells us that, that God's omnipotent, holy, wise, just, and good, right? All right, that's the first thing. The second thing is the Bible alone gives us an account of our origin. The Bible alone gives us an account of our origin. It gives us an account of our of our sinful nature um, and, uh, and, and man's... It, our consciousness, uh, or our consciousness of God, right? Man's consciousness of God and his sense of immorality. No other book, there's no other book that's ever been created that, that gives such a brutally honest portrayal of our total depravity. No other book ever created gives us a brutally honest picture of who we really are, but Scripture. The Bible alone reveals and explains the necessity of Christ's incarnation. That's the third thing. The Bible alone reveals and explains the necessity of Christ's incarnation, obedience, death, and resurrection. All right, the next thing is uh, the Bible alone reveals a plan of salvation for sinners that's both honoring to God and satisfactory to our consciousness. So, so what's, what's the plan of salvation? What's God's plan of salvation? It's the satisfaction of justice by substitution. I'm going to read this to you. It's the satisfaction of justice by substitutionary redemption and imputed righteousness by his free grace towards sinners in Christ. That's the plan of salvation. Romans 324 to 26, being justified by or being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration. I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Man, that should make us all jump up and holler. Anybody who reads the Bible and is honest with themselves with any degree of thoroughness uh, and depth Anybody who does that has to acknowledge that, that it could not possibly be a book written by humans alone. It could not possibly be a book written by humans alone. The Bible has God's stamp on it. <coughs> Amen? Amen? All right, here's the third thing. The third thing is um, the honesty and the sincerity of how the Bible deals with most of its prominent characters is evidence of its divine origin. <clears throat> the honesty and sincerity sincerity of how the Bible deals with most of its prominent characters is evidence of its divine origin. And here's what I mean. Most bi biographies that you read, or if you even watch uh, one that's been made into to a television show, if there's any weaknesses or faults exposed of the person in the biography, they're explained away or they're excused or they're made to appear, appear insignificant. But the Bible paints a different picture when it describes the lives of the most prominent characters because it, it shows their darkest sides, right? 
Uh, it, there's, the Bible never made an attempt to excuse or explain away uh, Noah's drunkenness. It never made an excuse or tried to explain away Abraham's fear or Lot's incest or Moses' anger or Aaron's idolatry or David's murder and adultery, the disciples' unbelief or Peter's fall or the issues that divided Paul and Barnabas. It never, it never tried to explain any of those away or, tried, or never tried to, to paint a different picture. Right. All right. Here's the fourth thing. The perfect the perfect harmony in the Bible is an unanswerable argument for its divine origin. And it's also a source of comfort and assurance for our faith. The perfect harmony in the Bible is an unanswerable argument for its divine origin. And it's also a source of comfort and assurance for our faith. And what that means <clears throat> In a sense is, if I was to witness my great-grandfather, who coincidentally passed away while my, he was, my mother was pregnant with me, right before I was born, if I was to witness him come out of the ground and back to life, that would be less miraculous than the existence of God's Word. You understand what I'm saying? That would be less miraculous. Witnessing a resurrection, a bodily resurrection, is less miraculous than the existence of God's word that we have in our hands. I'm gonna. The Bible was written in how many languages? Do you know? Three languages: Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. All right. It was written by 40 different authors who lived on two separate continents over a period of more than 1,600 years. Parts of it were written in palaces, parts in prisons. Some of it was written by well-educated men in great cities. Other parts were written by shepherds and fishermen. Parts of it were written during times of war, during plagues and danger. Other parts were, were written during times of ecstatic joy. Those who wrote the words of Scripture were from virtually every walk of life. Judges, priests, kings, prophets, prime ministers, herdsmen, scribes, fishermen, and soldiers. Yet in spite of all of those different circumstances, conditions, writers, and periods of time employed in the production of the book, it stands as one book, one book, and it's perfectly one in all of its points. It's free of error and free of any contradiction. Amen? A.W. Pink said this. I'm going to read you this quote. It's kind of long, but he said, Imagine 40 persons of different nationalities possessing various degrees of musical culture, visiting the organ of some great cathedral at long intervals of time and without any collusion whatsoever, striking 66 different notes, which when combined yielded the theme of the greatest and grandest hymn ever heard. Would it not show that behind these 40 different men there was one presiding mind, one great conductor? As we listen to some great orchestra with its immense variety of instruments playing their different parts, but, but producing melody and harmony, we realize that at the back of these many musicians, there is the personality and the genius of the composer. And when we enter the halls of the Divine Academy and listen to the heavenly choir singing the song of redemption, all in perfect accord and unison, we know that it's God himself who has written the music and put the song into their mouths. My goodness. So there's only one sane explanation of the existence for the existence of the Bible. Back to 2 Peter 
121, for no prophecy was ever made by human or by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. All right, here's the next thing, the fifth thing. The number of prophecies given to the Bible have been exactly fulfilled to the very letter, and that demands that honest people acknowledge the divine origin of the Bible. All right? The number of prophecies given to the Bible that have been exactly fulfilled to the very letter demand that honest people acknowledge the divine origin of the Bible. Prophecy is what? What is prophecy? It's foretelling the future, right? Before it happens. Foretelling the future events before it happens. And that's 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 like the bitter test of, of, of revelation. God himself appealed to fulfill prophecy through the whole book, Deuteronomy 18. He said, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. And in and second and Peter 1, 19 to 21 again. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. My goodness. I mean, there's a, what, a billion-dollar industry today in fortune-telling, psychics and fortune-tellers and palm readers. And, and, and these people blow people away. They do. They absolutely blow people go to a fortune teller and absolutely get blown away by what they're told. And what they're told is something vague, something very vague. They make very general predictions, and it, and it really surprises the heck out of people. But the Word of God doesn't make vague general predictions, but specific, precise predictions. And what it does is it stakes its credibility on it. It stakes its credibility on the very fulfillment of the prophecies that it makes. People criticize and found, find fault, but the Bible is the very Word of God, right? It's the very Word of God. It simply can't be explained any other way. It can't be explained any other way. It's an open book that was written in the, and it wasn't written in the languages of scholars. It was written in the plain language of common men. It was written in the common language of common men, and it's a, and it's a book for the people. It was delivered by God to His saints. It wasn't delivered to the Pope. It wasn't delivered to academics or to priests or to the clergy, but it was delivered to the saints of God. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing hidden in it. There's, it's not written in secret codes, but everything is open. So the, there's one thing, though, that is concealed in the Word of God. And I'll make that clear. There's one thing that's concealed, and that's the gospel. The gospel is concealed, but it's not because there's a veil on the book. It's because there's a veil on the hearts of men. All right. So the Bible is the inspired and infallible and inerrant word of God. It's in uh, evidences and arguments for divine origin and inspiration are as comforting as they are undeniable. Now, the next point, the doctrine of the Bible's inspiration and infallibility has very serious consequences. The doctrine of the Bible's inspiration and infallibility has very serious consequences. So if the Bible is indeed the word of God, its authority can't be questioned. Its teachings can't be disputed. 
All that it says has to be received as true. It has to be submitted to and obeyed. Its words have it must be honestly and faithfully interpreted. There must be on our part a, a conformity to God's holy word. We must bow before God as he speaks in his word and our hearts must be willing to be taught. Right? We've discussed already the books of a divine origin, right? But our understanding of it, our understanding of it's also a divine origin. Does that make sense? The books of divine origin, but our understanding of it too. Every time we open it, we should pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our our hearts and cause us to understand Scripture. Because that's the only way we're ever going to understand it. All right, so, so here's the last point. The metaphors used to describe the Bible give us a hint of their usefulness and profitability. The metaphors used to describe the Bible give us a hint of their usefulness and profitability. So if we understand the metaphors or study the metaphors given in Scripture um, for the Word of God, we'll, we'll, we'll see several things. The Bible's compared to a lamp. Psalms, and I've got the, I believe I've got the, yeah, y'all write those down. It's compared to a lamp or a light. It's called a mirror. And the reason it's called a mirror is we look into the Bible to see what? Ourselves. We look into the Bible to see ourselves, not what we think we are, but what we really are, right? And who we really are. We're sinful, corrupt, depraved. We're lost, utterly hopeless. So the Bible is a mirror that shows us who we really are. Scripture is also compared to a wash bowl. A wash bowl in Ephesians 5, it's, com- it's, it's compared to bread or food for our souls in Job. It's, it's bread for the hungry or milk for babes, strong meat for men. It's compared to, uh, to both fire to melt, warm, and comfort. And it's, uh, it's a hammer to break, Jeremiah 23. It's the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6. It's called the good seed, which is sown by the preaching of the gospel in Luke 8, Ecclesiastes 11, and Psalms 126. There's a lot to this book. There's a lot to the book, but we should understand that it is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. It comes directly from him. Psalms 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold yeah then much fine gold sweeter than honey and the honeycomb that's the word of god let's pray father god thank you so much for your word lord i pray this morning that we have a better understanding of the truth of your word we have a better understanding of what it is that we actually hold in our hand it is a miracle of you lord One of the greatest miracles of this day is how how this book has been preserved over the years. God, I pray that we understand that and we we just don't nonchalantly treat 
treat your book like it's like it's just something that has always been there and that always will be there. Lord, it, it, you could take it away at any moment. Your word talks about removing your word from people. You've 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 sent famines of your word, Lord, and I pray that this country doesn't receive that. I pray that we understand what we have. Lord, and, and, and if we want to hear from you, all we have to do is crack it open. That's how you speak to us today, Lord, is through your word. Lord, I pray we get that. I pray we understand that. Lord, I ask you now in the power of the Holy Spirit. That if there be any amongst us today, Lord, that you wish to draw unto yourself, Lord, I pray that you do it through the preaching of your gospel. I ask you this in the name that stands above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. So, the Bible, the Word of God, it's a book entirely about what? Anybody? It's a book entirely about Jesus. It's a book entirely about Jesus. The Bible is not a book about morality. It's not a book about science. It's not a book about politics or a book about theology. The Bible is a book with one subject, and that subject is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus himself says. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. After his resurrection, we're told in Luke 24, um, he says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So he was clear. He told the disciples that all the scriptures were written about him. And at that point in time, all they had was the Old Testament, right? So he, and we know the New Testament's written all about him. But the Old Testament was too. Is the central and constant theme of Scripture is Christ is Christ and Him crucified. The whole Bible can be summarized in three statements. Here's three statements that can summarize the whole of Scripture. The Old Testament tells us that the Redeemer is coming, right? The four Gospels in the Book of Acts tell us the Redeemer has come, and the Epistles in the Book of Revelations tell us tell us that the Redeemer is coming again. Let me read that again. The Old Testament tells us the Redeemer is coming. The four Gospels in the book of Acts tell us that the Redeemer has come. And the epistles in Revelation tell us that the Redeemer is coming again. So why do we need a Redeemer? Why do we need a Redeemer? The fall brought man into a condition. But not only a condition, it was condemnation. Right? Right? And we need forgiveness of sin, but the condemnation is something that that comes to us as a result of one single act of disobedience, as Paul said in Romans 5. So no matter what we do, what we say, if we obey the law from now, from now on for the rest of our lives, we can never achieve righteousness because we're already sinners. So from this point on, think about that, from this point on for the rest of your life, if you completely, totally, perfectly obey God's law, you're still condemned. Because you're already a sinner. You're already, there's no way we can, we can come back to the standard of righteousness. We're already lawbreakers. So from, from the fact that the law has been broken and we're under condemnation, that's the reason we need a redeemer. Right? 
even if we could achieve some degree of righteousness by our obedience, let's say that we could do that, even if we could achieve some degree of righteousness by our obedience, there's still the necessity of someone paying for the sins of our past. Someone, There's someone that must pay for the law-breaking that we've already done. There's got to be. God's not going to violate his word, and that's what his word says. That's what his word says. He said, if we break the law, we will die. That's what it says, and we're under a curse. Even if we obey God's law right now, someone has to pay for the curse. Someone has to do it. We can't pay it for ourselves and gain forgiveness. We can't. The only way we can pay, the only way we can pay for our own sins is under judgment forever. So we can't achieve forgiveness by paying for our own sins because the payment is judgment that lasts forever. Man. So for someone to pay, in order for that to happen, in order for forgiveness to actually come, there's got to be a qualified redeemer. A qualified redeemer. So that means that there's there's got to be glory in the redeemer. That means that there's got to be some kind of qualification in the substitute. So much that, that God's fully satisfied with the sacrifice made by that person. And he could only do that in himself. He could only find that in himself. He couldn't find it in us. So those are the reasons, all those reasons, that's why we need a redeemer, someone outside of ourselves to be our redeemer. We're helpless and hopeless without that. Every one of us. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He's our redeemer. He took God's wrath and judgment on himself for our sake. Come to Christ today. If you're here and you live without Christ, come to Christ today. He's faithful and just to cleanse you from your sins. All you have to do is call on his name, and his word says you will be saved. So if we, as we start this invitation time, I'll say that. Uh, if you've never come to Christ, come now. Come now. He, he's, he will cleanse you from your sin and impute the righteousness of Christ to you. So when he looks at you from now through the end of your life, he, he's not looking at you anymore. He's looking at his own son. So come to Christ today. If you're here and you, you've been visiting with us and you're uh, thinking about placing your membership here, we can talk about that too. Or if you've uh, never been baptized, um, we, can, um, we can talk about scheduling that as well. If you need to come to the altar and pray, let's pray. But whatever it is, however the Holy Spirit leads you, don't, don't just sit in your seat. Don't just stand there. Respond now.